Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion. On this podcast, we learn about recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We ask scientists how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn about what makes a new species and hear some behind the scenes stories along the way. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion, and I'm here with Dr. Catalina Romero Ortiz, biologist at Universidad Nacional de Colombia. She's here today to tell us about her paper published in issue 1184 of Zoakies, in which she and her co-authors describe a new genus and five new species of pseudoscorpions. Welcome, Catalina. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. So I'm pretty, pretty excited to be here. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Okay, yes, thank you. Well, uh, I'm a biologist, and recently I finished my PhD uh, research, and uh, I worked almost all my career, I have worked with pseudoscorpions, and I am really interested in understanding the patterns of diversity in this group, uh, but more in depth onto taxonomy. I am really, really a fan of taxonomy and I wish I had, I, I was like a pure taxonomist. <laughs> so um, I've been just doing this uh, like diversity things in my country, but I have visited, of course, another other collections around the world uh, looking for those, those uh, patterns of diversity. Um, and recently, I just published uh, this paper that you just uh, said, the five new species from Colombia of this family that is with the Ide. Um, and I really, I, I am like, I realized pretty early that there were many, many species to describe. So uh, that's what I meant, like my research too. It's just to describe new species and see if, for example, the relationships between the species, the genera, and the families are stable or not, and maybe try to explain some other diversity, more than the species diversity, like the behavioral diversity and things like that. How, how did you come to study pseudoscorpions? Um, when I started my uh, bachelor, I took an invertebrate course and I really fell in love with insects and arthropods in general. So I started to go to the Institute of Natural Sciences in my university and there was a professor, a specialist in arachnids in general, and he was pretty uh, um, willing to like train new arachnid, arachnid people. <laughs> So agnologist, so um, I started to um, research on spiders, mainly because those are pretty diverse and everybody just wanted to look through spiders. But once I was trying to understand spiders and I looked these pseudoscorpions under the uh, stereo microscope, and I really liked them. 
So there was a guy trying to trying to read the key and determine these specimens, and we did it together. And I said, I I thought, well, this could be like a very good group to start with. And I started. I started to learn to to the structures and the keys. It, it was mostly at the beginning. It was mostly very autonomous, but then I started to write to Mark Harvey, who is the specialist, one of the world specialists who is in Australia, and he started to help me with literature and things like that. So, yes, that was my <laughs> those were my beginnings. You fell in love. It sounds like. Yes, I did. I really <laughs> did. Yes, and I, I hope this, this love never ends. <laughs> <laughs> That's so beautiful. Our last episode was an interview with a scientist studying scorpions. Pseudoscorpions are totally different. Um, can you can you explain the difference? Yes. So pseudoscorpions kind of resemble scorpions because they have these uh, two anterior appendages that are like pincers, like Aquila. Uh, but they lack uh, the telson or the tail uh, as a scorpion does have. Um, the size is pretty different. Uh, pseudoscorpions can size up to 1.2 centimeters at, as much. So they are pretty small and uh, they are related they actually they are actually related uh, they are kind of like the arachnid phylogeny is changing but the last phylogeny said that scorpions as if the scorpions are related are pretty close together the the other phylogeny doesn't seem to uh, to show a similar result but they are they 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 are related. They they are pretty related, but they they differ in size. They differ in the the, the lack of the of, of this tail. And pseudoscorpions, uh, they do have venom, but they uh, have them in the pincers in the um, in the chila. So I'm getting a, a picture of a pseudoscorpion in my mind. Um, can you can you describe them in a little more detail? Like if I were yes. looking at a sample under the microscope of a bunch of different arthropods, how how would I know that it's a pseudoscorpion? Okay, so uh, they are like uh, like a small ball <laughs> with pincers or chila like a scorpion in the anterior part of their bodies. Uh, and they will have like... Um, these four um, pairs of legs uh, going under the cephalothorax, like the anterior part or, or anterior part of their bodies. They would be pretty like reddish, brownish, yellowish. They are like pre cryptic. So those colors are more like for camouflage on the soil. So when I look through the samples, for example, uh, for example and they are alive, I look through their, their, the way they walk because they can walk uh, like um, backwards. So it's pretty, it, it, it is kind of, you can spot easily a pseudoscorpion if you look it, it look it like working because it, they walk backwards. It is kind of funny and it's pretty like, oh, that's a pseudoscorpion when they do that. But if you are like certain samples, you can easily recognize them because of the pincers. They, they, you can see like a scorpion, but a, but a tiny, 
tiny scorpion without the tail. That is so cool. I had no idea that they walk backwards. Yes, they do. And and when you are on the on the field, that's the best way to catch them because they are pretty small and creative. They 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 can you cannot differentiate it with the the environment. So yes, that's a good thing. And scorpions fluoresce under UV light. So I think a lot of so a lot of scientists take a UV light out into the field and shine the light and you can see the scorpion very clearly. Does that happen with pseudoscorpions too? No, and sadly, no. <laughs> so the best way to catch them in the field are they are normally if you look under the bark, the bark of the tree, and they maybe they are just like staying there. And if you sort uh, sift a little of the leaf litter, uh, maybe in that sorting you can see two scorpions walking around. So, so they're under the bark. What are they doing there? So some of them are living like, for example, they do have like a I, I don't know how do you say that, like a silk nest sometimes to to breed there to sometimes they are just like um praying some other arthropods um and they can just catch like catching preys and uh, getting together with another like a if they are males like a female of theirs or of their species they do live over there some of them and some of them are just in the litter. So it seems that that, that there, there is a relationship between the taxa and the the habitat. It is not well studied. So And can you find them sort of all over the world? Yes, you can find them all over all over the world. There, there, there are like records, like for example, in the um, beaches of California, where you can find them over uh, rocks in the beach, which is kind of nice. <laughs> you know? Oh wow! And so, in all these different habitats too. Yes, yes, they can be in under rocks, whatever. It's, it's it is amazing. There was um, um, there is a, a researcher a bottle in Canada that is um they they discover that a, a a species of pseudoscorpion were were living under the rocks even when the river uh, just covered the rocks and the pseudoscorpions can live over there like for months oh, wow. so it is amazing how they can resist all these uh, environmental pressures that's incredible. If I wanted to go and collect pseudoscorpions, yeah, how how would I collect a pseudoscorpion? And should I should I worry about about being stung? Okay, no, that that's something that I was <laughs> I, I was I was gonna say, and it, and it was like the venom in pseudoscorpions is completely harmless to humans because it is they are pretty tiny. The doses that they can spell are minimal. So you cannot worry. Just just don't worry about that. <laughs> you can go to the field and take a pseudoscorpion with your hands. It's not going to happen. There, there's nothing going to happen. 
uh, they will try to uh, to 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 inject some venom, but they can't. They are pretty small. <laughs> so, yes, they are like it's, it's, it's just like oh, they are so nice. <laughs> so you can uh, the 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 tools that I normally use are like uh, tiny brushes. So I got. Uh, brushes when you put the brush the tiny brush under the pseudoscorpion they will um, catch it like trying to defend they will catch it and they will go under the the brush and you can just collect it in, in ethanol or if you want to rise them and to uh, breathe them you can do it um on like pieces of uh paper like a um like maybe cotton you can put them in cotton but it's not recommended because the fibers are pretty could be just tangle the pseudoscorpion and the other way that i do is like uh with a sifter uh the ones that you can use to collect soil arthropods you can use the same and i normally do with the sifters that geologists use to separate soil particles, <laughs> I do that, <laughs> and I do it over a white blanket. So I start just looking at the movement, and I can catch them move backwards. So that's that's the two main ways that I do that. That's so cool. It sounds like collecting pseudoscorpions is a real passion of yours. <laughs> It is. It is. Um, it is pretty difficult. I mean, I, I will not say you're gonna just go to your gander and, and see social scorpions. Sometimes it happens, but it does normally not happen. This is about patience too. Sometimes you can go to the field and spend all your day, and you cannot catch any, and that's sad. But sometimes. <laughs> you can catch a lot so it's kind of be patient and sometimes i i know i don't know but i always try to like ask for permission to the earth you know it's kind of hippie but uh it works <laughs> no i i think that's wonderful and so maybe maybe unfortunately or or maybe not um you didn't actually uh do a lot of new collecting for this paper Yes. Instead, you went to the Colombian Instituto de Ciencias Naturales at Universidad Nacional de Colombia, so where you are currently um, working, and you looked at their preserved collection of pseudoscorpions. Um, so, so with all of these new exciting pseudoscorpions to collect, why did you decide to go back into that collection? Uh, well, the the thing with this with Ive, this family is that it is not so abundant. You know, they, they, are, they are one or two in one collect collect point and maybe you cannot collect more. So collections, they are very important to, to especially for those groups that you cannot see in the field so often. Um, and I think that collections, since they, are, they have a historical value, they do have a lot of things that maybe I could have I couldn't collect in the field with many many hours in the field. Uh, sometimes, for example, one of the species that I discovered uh, 
was in, of, of a place that it is not long, it doesn't not longer exist, you know, and that happens everywhere. So I think that collections they got like a very important uh, thing for us, for taxonomists and for biologists that like diversity. I guess I, I should back up and ask about the family that your new species are in. Um, so it's a family named Withiidae. Um, how do they relate to the other pseudoscorpions and, and why are they so special to you? Okay, so when I was starting my PhD, I was looking for a family that allowed me to prove, to test something. I wanted to see if sexual selection was acting upon pseudoscorpion genitalia. And think think that sometimes they're pretty difficult to study because they're pretty tiny and some genitalia are not described, most of them, <laughs> they are not describing. So um, I started to see if there was a family that allowed me that and we did it. Uh, got like the best the, the best option because with it has around 170 species it is not that big to approach to and the other thing is that uh, pseudoscorpions of the family with it they got um dance mates and they got these dance mates where the male grabs the female um the female kila and dances with it with hair that's something that scorpions also do and they the the important thing is that they deposit this sperm in a spermatophore and that spermatophore got a, a special shape and that special shape are molded in the pseudoscorpion genitalia so in that sense i was thinking well if the pseudoscorpion genitalia got this special shape and it is needed for the for the reproductive behavior. Maybe it is subject of sexual selection, and with Ide has this particular particular behavior. Not just with Ide, but the other families of the Califeridae. There are two more: Atimnidae and Cernidae. They also have this, but Cernidae is a monster family. It's one thousand three hundred twenty-five species, and Atimnidae it's a pretty small family. <laughs> It does not have so much diversity. So with it, it seems like the perfect model for tasting this. So I started to uh, try to characterize the genitalia. But of course, <laughs> I wanted to see more of the diversity of the species. That's why I started with the with Your work is such a good example of the opportunities that taxonomists have to be interdisciplinary. You can examine questions like behavior while doing taxonomy work. I, I think that's so cool. I, I want to ask about the specimens. Um, the the collection in Colombia is on the older side, right? Yes. Well, the collection started, I think, in the 70s. It is not that old as like many historical collections, but the, the richness of the collection is that it has been like fit with all these collecting all over the country. And it is the biggest collection in my country. So we got more than 800 specimens of pseudoscorpions. And that's huge for a collection that is just like uh, four years old. So um, 
So yes, so I, I did um, most of my research in this collection because it was like the biggest. Do you know a lot about who was originally collecting these specimens? Well, um, they are not like, they, there is not like a, just a taxonomist doing this job. I think it is just the work of all professors um, in the Instituto. They are specialists in many, many other groups, but they tend to collect everything. Like whatever it is, it's gonna take, it's gonna be in the collection. So this, this was amazing in the time that we didn't have to ask for permission to collect. <laughs> so it, it was amazing because of that. And um, Eduardo Flores was the, 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 the professor that started the collection. Uh, he arrived to the Instituto in the 70s and he started the collection with the specimens that were just like unsorted around and he started to do it with the spiders, especially then scorpions. And then he started to do it with some other collections. I I'm proud to say that most of the pseudoscorpion collection was sorted by me myself because there was there were like 200 specimens when I arrived, but there were many unsorted. So one of my first tasks as an undergraduate student was to organize the collection. Congratulations, that's, <laughs> um, that's so impressive. And also it's really special that it sounds like you've been with this collection for a while and sort of through your scientific career. Yes, I, I have been there since 2000 and 2009. So I've been working all, almost all my career over there. That's amazing. When you arrived at the collection, you said a lot of the material was unsorted. Um, so for people who are not familiar, oftentimes when scientists are doing like big collecting trips or even if even small collecting trips, they might use, for example, the, the sifter that you were talking about or another tool to collect a lot of different specimens, maybe not specific groups or genera, um, maybe just like all the arthropods in the leaf litter in this place that they're sifting. And they put them all into a big bulk sample. And then depending yes. on who is working and, and things like that, um, scientists will go in and take, you know, the things that they're looking for. Is, is that what the situation was? Yes, it is. It, it was something like everybody was doing some Winkler traps that were especially for soy arthropods. So you got lots of species in a book and and it is kind of, it is amazing to look over those, but it's kind of pretty hardworking over like, you, you can imagine like all the diversity that we have that we normally see with our eyes but now in a mesocosmos that are pretty rich of lots of arthropods, spiders, uh, beetles, bugs, and a lot of thing, different things. So it's it's amazing, but hardworking. So, so much work. I have gone through many bulk samples and I always feel intimidated looking down into the vial or the jar in some cases and saying like, wow, that is... There's a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, I say all this to to emphasize how much work you did. Um, I think that's amazing. And and then also you had to 
you had to examine the pseudoscorpions and they're really small. So did you actually, did you put them on slides? Um, well, I didn't because I think that maybe when you put them in the slides, there are some characters that are lost and I prefer to preserve them in white, like in liquid, you know? And I always do that with ethanol. That's, that's it. I, I mount them just temporarily when I am describing a species or maybe trying to get, like trying to, to determine the species because some characters, you need to see them under microscope, but some of them you don't. So you just put them on the ethanol and examine, examine them over there. And and what kind of characters are you looking at when you're trying to describe a new species? Okay, so um, I normally well describing a species in pseudoscorpions are more like looking for proportions, uh, proportions, and I mean like measuring lengths and widths of some structures, comparing them with the descriptions and see if maybe they differ a lot or not. That's kind of kind of subjective if you see that under statistics. But I normally try to get some new characters, for example, in the abdomen. This family with Ide has a special thing that is like a a lot of glandular sera under uh, over the abdomen. So I that's that sera has like a special distribution. And I try to see if the distribution differs a lot between species or not. And obviously, I try I, I try to do that with the genitalia because pseudoscorpion genitalia are pretty underestimated. And I try to characterize it first to see if there were differences. And I, I found the differences between them. So what kind of magnification do you need to be able to see these little setae, the little hairs on the pseudoscorpions that are already so small? How do you even approach that? Yes, it is it is, it is tricky. Um, I, I, I normally like just clear them uh, and clear them. I mean, like to see them under microscope. And I normally do like uh, the 10 times and then the 20 times and see if the microscope can get some of the, those uh, CD. And um, for this work, I actually did it with SEM microscopy because I, I was trying to see if there was there were structural differences. I, I found that and that was something that I would like to do with other pseudoscorpions to see if the CETA are different and things like that. So. I think that for animal animals that are like this small, we need to take a lot of tools, imagine tools to see if there are differences. Yeah, absolutely. What was it like after after so much time just using a microscope to see your first SEM results? Yes, <laughs> it was amazing actually. <laughs> when because I obviously. I was I had access to the SEM when I um, traveled for my short term stays on, on on my PhD, and when I started to see pseudoscorpions under the SEM, it was amazing. It was such a nice thing to see all these theta and these cultures, 
and things that you normal you don't normally see. So SEM it's it's the best for them. And your type material, did you leave it at Instituto Ciencias? Yes, I did. All material that I examined were part of the collection. And one of the rules of the collection is that the type materials should stay there. So yes, I leave it there. That's really nice, especially because um, all of the, I think maybe we didn't explicitly say this, but um, all of the pseudoscorpions that you examined were from Colombia. Yes, yes. And they are all for the from the collection and they are for all from Colombia. And and when I started looking at the collection and see that maybe there were some new some new species, I look some of the type localities and I went to them and see if I can I could find something else. And I did find something else for one of the species. Um so that was nice. <laughs> And I collected most of them um, near Bogota, that is my hometown. But I also did some uh, field trips uh, in Colombia to see if I could find the pseudoscorpion, the pseudoscorpion, like more material to collect. That's so special. I think it's such a strength uh, when collections reflect the the areas that they're in, because not only are local scientists more familiar with the area and its biogeography and things like that, um, and and maybe have uh, the expertise to collect in a more efficient way than people who are new to the area. Um, but also you have the opportunity to work on your own biodiversity. And I, I think that's a really important thing. Yes, it is. And, and thanks to mention it, for mentioning, because I think that as in, in, the, in the 20th century, there was more this thing that we should just collect and send the samples to see if the specialists were able to um, describe the species and see if there was there were there, there were something new or something like that. But in the later years, there there's this thing that we we should be the ones that do that, and we we have all these uh, tools to do it. So just let's let's do it. So. That's something that it, it is pretty nice. And also collaborate with specialists that are outside. And it is okay. Well, when I started to describe the species, I, I work with um, Mark Harvey, who is in, in the Western Australian Museum. And I asked him in, if he wanted to have some paratypes over there, things like that, things of, or things like that. But he said that um, he thought that the collection should be here, like the type material should be here. So because we need it also to look at specimens. That that's something that that some people don't um, don't realize that when you try to describe a species, you have to look through the other types to see if they how they all they they differ. But collections sometimes uh, don't allow you to like lend the material so you have to go to the collection and see the specimens and that's not something affordable for 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 scientists in latin america for example so that's kind of i know that collections are more accessible now for example with this um systematization of the collections and the type material photograph and things like that it is not 
uh, that easy for pseudoscorpions or animals that are so small, you know? Sometimes they are pretty damaged. So yes, kind of tricky. Absolutely. So not only did you describe five new species, but you actually um, described a, an entirely new genus in the family with Theodae. So can you tell us about that? Of course. So um, for people who maybe are not familiar with taxonomy, so genus are a um, group of, spe of species that share some characteristics. They got something in common. Uh, and we we found some specimens that were not um, fulfilling the, the the characteristics that the all the genera are that are, are currently described. So we we thought, well, maybe they could this could be something in a pretty unknown genus, and we don't know. But we did like a lot of um, research. In descriptions and see, and we realized that this specimen, those specimens were pretty different of all other specimens that were described. So um, we decided to arise a new genus that is called Passivithius. And Passivithius uh, got two new species. So those Passivithius are in the coastal, the Caribbean coast of Colombia. And the other Passiwithius is uh, in the Orinoco region of Colombia. So um, we we try to put them together because they lack so many things. I mean, they are with Ive because they got this glandular theta that I talked uh, before, but they do not have eyes. They do not have a special cedar in a in a leg that was special for this family. I mean, they got lots of different combination of characters that we we thought, well, this could be a new genus, and 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 it was Passiwithius. It is named um, in honor of the peace process of Colombia. So Colombia is a is a country that has been in a civil war from many years. And we are used to that 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 thing because I think that in the cities you cannot see it, but in the the countryside uh, it is it is kind of violent. But the the later years in the 2012 there was a peace agreement between the conflict groups and things like that, and we wanted to um, honor this process around and uh, name it this genus for this process. Pax is the Latin for peace. So passivitians means, means peace. There's a lot that taxonomists can communicate. It's not just um, naming a species after some place or someone. Um, sometimes you can communicate these broad and, and really important ideas through the work that you do, um, both in the naming and in the rest of your work. So um, I, I think this is a really beautiful example of that. Yes, thank you. Yes, it is. And I think that as scientists, all of us are called to to arise aware of some things that they, 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 that doesn't work, you know? So I think we held in our shoulders, I think, much of the social responsibility. I, I think we, we are we are agents of change and we need it.
I completely agree. It takes all sorts of people to make the world a better place and all sorts of work. The last question I always ask is, is why do you think that your work is important? Um, why do you think that it matters? And and I, I think you're starting to answer that question. But um, yeah, why, why do you think that your work matters? Well, I think that my work matters in many ways. I'm going to try to summarize. <laughs> so one of these is biodiversity. Biodiversity is threatened and we need urgently to know what is happening in, the, in, in our planet. So one way of doing it is knowing diversity and it applies for all animal and plant groups. The second thing is science in Latin American countries, it's important. And I think that we are doing a great job and we need to recognize this work and allow us to to see and and to to maybe fill many gaps that are, for example, diversity, um, the diversity gaps, um, cultural gaps, lots of gaps that are around. And I think that we are called to do that as scientists. Um, the other thing that I would say I would say is um, highlighting the importance of. Um, biological collections. They are a treasure and sometimes people don't realize that they are. And there are lots of many different animals, plants, um, biological organisms that are there to, to be discovered. And, and the last thing that I would say is, as we were saying, we are called to to change the world and a way to change the world that I really like to is taxonomy and discovering how biology can be not just like useful in a practical way, but useful in a in an academical and an intellectual way. I think that's all really powerful. I know you have a lot of really exciting work ahead of you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. This was an amazing space to share the things that I do. And I hope that people um, that maybe are maybe biologists that are just starting or maybe uh, people are around in society shares the importance of the kind of work that, uh, that I and more, most of these of my colleagues do. So thank you so much for having me here, Siri, and I really enjoyed this time with you. I enjoyed this time with you too. And I hope that people, uh, if they're not already obsessed with pseudoscorpions, get a little obsessed with pseudoscorpions, like yes, like me, yes. just hearing about them from you. I'm um, I'm so excited to to go and learn more after this. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I really do hope that people just share this with us. And they're so cute. <laughs> yes, they are. They are amazing. They are amazing. Catalina Romero Ortiz's paper, A New Genus and Five New Species of Pseudoscorpions from Colombia, is in issue 1184 of Zookeys. To learn more about Catalina and her work, you can visit her ResearchGate profile, link in the description. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Species Podcast. This podcast was created by Brian Patrick and is edited and produced by Zoe Albion.
If you would like to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash newspeciespod. And if you'd like to get in touch with questions or feedback, please email us at newspeciespodcast at gmail.com.